National station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong at the start of a brand new week, Monday the 16th of May 2022. Welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the business and finance headlines. The Hong Kong government has cut its GDP growth forecast for this year to 1-2%. to As it warned that the local economy will continue to be bogged down by the external environment. The latest projection, released on Friday, was down from the 2 to 3.5% expansion that Financial Secretary Paul Chan announced in February. Shanghai reported a total of 1,369 COVID cases yesterday, down almost 20% from the previous day. It was the 21st day of declines in infections in Shanghai. The city announced on Sunday that it will gradually reopen shopping centres, supermarkets, restaurants, pharmacies and other businesses in phases from today, while restaurants will be allowed to serve takeout food. Credit growth in China decelerated sharply in April, with total social financing and RMB loans coming in well below market expectations. New bank loans tumbled 80% from the previous month and more than half from a year ago as coronavirus lockdowns dampened credit demand. Total social financing, a broad measure of funding in the real economy, was 51% lower than a year ago. Beijing on Sunday cut mortgage rates for first-time home buyers in a bid to revive the property market. First-time home buyers will be able to borrow money at an interest rate of 4.4%, down from 4.6% previously and 20%, 20 basis points below the corresponding loan prime rate. And India banned wheat exports on Saturday with immediate effect, raising fears of a global food crisis. Global buyers were banking on supplies from the world's second, second biggest wheat producer after exports from the Black Sea region plunged following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Before the ban, India had aimed to ship a record 10 million tonnes this year. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Sullivan at Outset Global and Quinton Webb from the Wall Street Journal. With a view from mainland China is Brock Silvers of Kyan Capital. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, the S&P 500 rallied 2.4% Friday to end the session at 4,024, capping a wild week of gyrations which saw the US benchmark index lose 2.4% over the five trading days. It's the sixth consecutive weekly loss for the index, the longest losing streak since 2012. Friday's rebound meant the S&P 500 narrowly avoided falling into a formal bear market when an index declines 20% from its recent highs. The Dow rose 466 points to 32,197 for a weekly loss of 2.1%. The Nasdaq Composite jumped 3.8% to 11,805. That's the strongest one-day gain since November 2020. But it was down 2.8% over the week, the sixth consecutive losing week and the longest set of weekly declines since 2011. For 2022 so far, the tech-heavy index has lost 24.5%. The Pan-European Stock 600 index was up 0.8% last week. London's FTSE 100 climbed 0.4% over the five trading days. 
Hong Kong stocks closed higher Friday after a rocky week of trading fueled by fears of inflation and US monetary tightening. The Hang Seng Index rose 518 points, or 2.7%, to 19,899, but was down half a percent over the week. The Hang Seng Tech Index rebounded 4.5%, saving it from a steep weekly loss and leaving it up 0.1% over the week. Mainland stocks were the standout global performers of the week as the COVID-19 outbreak in China appeared to stabilise. The Shanghai Composite rose 1% Friday to 3,084, taking its weekly gain to 2.8%. And the Chinex in Shenzhen had its best week of the year, surging 5%, but it's still down 29% year-to-date. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil rose 3.4% Friday, but was down almost 1% over the week. It's at $112.21 a barrel this morning. Copper fell 2% over the week, and gold fell almost 4% last week. It's fourth straight weekly decline as rising U.S. interest rates on the horizon sap appetites for the bullion. It's trading this morning at $1,810 an ounce. The U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yield is down 21 basis points over the week at 2.93%. And the U.S. dollar index climbed 0.8% last week. The euro this morning at $1.04. The buck's trading at 129.4 Japanese yen. Sterling is worth $1.22.5 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 62 cents. The onshore yuan weakened further to break through 6.8 per US dollar for the first time since September 2020, before rebounding to end the day at 6.788. And a collapse in controversial stablecoin terror resulted in a meltdown in the crypto market last week, which erased more than $200 billion of value in a single day on Thursday. Bitcoin dropped below 26,000 at one stage to its lowest level in 16 months. It did stage a rebound on Friday, jumping 5%, and this morning it's trading at 31,000. And if we take a look around Asian Pacific markets this morning, we're seeing a pretty strong rebound, actually. Uh, the ASX 200 in Australia up half a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan up one and a quarter percent. Stocks in South Korea also rising. The Cosby moving 0.7% higher. And futures markets indicating a gain of about 300 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. It's 8.09 and a half. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us, we have Quinton Webb, Asian Markets Editor at the Wall Street Journal. Morning to you, Quinton. Good morning. Um, as you heard there, global stocks recorded six straight weeks of declines. That's the longest losing streak since the 2008 global financial crisis. The FTSE All World Index dropped 2.2% uh, last week. Um, let me ask you, um, Andrew, and uh, Quintin, we've seen basically uh, the Nasdaq in a bear market down 30% from its highs. The S&P 500 just escaped a bear market last week. Are you seeing any sign that investors have now priced in the full range of rate hikes that the Fed might unleash on us and stocks have now got cheap enough to be at a low or close to a low? 
Um, I don't think the market's fully priced it in because, I mean, the Fed's been doing an awful lot of speaking uh, about what it's going to do with rates without really uh, confirming what it's going to do with rates. So we know they're going to raise rates and we know they want to do it aggressively. Uh, but it's still too difficult to say, I think, you know, where their final neutral position is going to be. So I think investors are, are looking at stocks, certainly. But I think uh, they're, they're being very cautious as they apply, their, uh, they apply the money to actually buy them. Quinton? Um, I think one issue here is that we're also seeing this kind of big rotation from, you know, highly valued tech stocks into kind of more traditional stocks like um, oil and gas companies, for example. Um, And so those figures um, for the overall decline in the market don't really capture how much of a kind of crash there's been in things like Netflix and Zoom and so on. Um, So you might make a case that maybe, you know, some of those tech stocks are kind of close to reaching a bottom because they have sold off so heavily so far this year, you know, some of them down sort of 60% or or more since the beginning of the year. What do you think investors are waiting for um, to sense a buying opportunity? What's it going to prompt, uh, what's it going to take to prompt them to get back in? Well, I think, I mean, like most things, I mean, there are just a lot of overhanging issues. I mean, we've still got the implications of the war in Ukraine, uh, and people are worried about what that's going to do to to food prices going forward. Uh, We've still got China maintaining its uh, zero COVID policy uh, and the impact that that has on supply chains and and the global economy. So I think, you know, at the moment, people are, they're still active, they're still investing, they're still looking for good stocks. Um, But there are a lot of unknowns out there that are causing them to to maybe just hold back a little bit. So it's not just the Fed, because any of those issues on their own, the war in Ukraine, the lockdowns in China, they're, they're pretty big issues, each of them on their own. Yes, and they obviously all have big implications for the global picture and I think people are, are, are aware of that uh, and, and also the fact that you know, we're, we're still getting used to this, to, you know, the idea of living with COVID in most of the world uh, we haven't seen the rebound in, in tourism yet but you know, we, we're seeing indications that, that that will be a sector that should do well in the summer so there's, there's just a lot of unknowns out there and people are just being cautious that's the problem, Quentin, isn't it, really? There's just too many factors for investors to take into account at the moment. That's right. I mean, you know, cynics sometimes say that the market likes to focus on one thing at a time, you know, be it kind of the trajectory of the Fed or be it um, the shape of the global economy. But at the moment, as Andrew has just outlined, there's, you know, several things that need to be kind of contemplated at once. And that makes it rather difficult. Um you know, there's a there's a lot of different factors in play, and uh, it, it's not quite clear what is what is the kind of key driver for the global markets. Where are the safe havens? Because when stocks decline, as they're doing at the moment, um, people traditionally tend to move in bonds, but bonds have been collapsing. Gold uh, is having a tough time. Crypto markets uh, are collapsing. Where are the safe havens? There don't seem to be any at the moment. Well, I think you're still seeing people looking at, at you know good companies, um, you know, companies that have got pricing power, price, companies that aren't exposed to high debt levels, um, and, and have a good brand name so that they can actually pass on costs as they come through. Um, I think for the traditional safe havens, I think, yes, there's been a big, big shake up there. You know, until a few weeks ago, you know, the yen was seen as a safe haven, and now it's seen much more as a, as a, mm-hmm. as a funding currency. So there, there are switches taking place, uh, and that just reflects you know, the, the changes that we're seeing at the macro level. 
Quinty, the problem is not even cash is in the safe haven anymore, is it? With inflation over 8%, um, it's not a good idea to sit in cash either. What, what do you do if you, if you really um, are worried about the markets? Well, yep, that is a really good question. There are very few kind of genuine safe havens at the moment. I mean, I'd like to kind of dispense the idea that, you know, crypto was ever really a kind of credible safe haven. I think the kind of price action in the last few weeks um, is a pretty dramatic argument against that. Um, but then, you know, there are some sort of pockets of relative stability. So, you know, Treasury bonds have sort of stabilized. Yields have come back down a little bit recently. Um, and as I said, there has also been this sort of big rotation. So behind the kind of overall headline figures in the market, you do see some pockets of stability in more kind of old economy sectors. And the same goes globally. So some markets that are more sort of old economy and focus have done a little bit better. It's all kind of relative rather than stunning outperformance. Um, but there are these areas which are, which are faring better in this kind of pretty punishing overall sell-off. Mm. Well, what do you make of the collapse in the crypto markets? Is this another sign of investors fleeing from risk assets or people starting to also reassess the worth of cryptocurrencies themselves? Well, I think, I think we have to, you know, the, the, the trouble is the crypto market is is so vast and wide you know we were you know we were led to believe that stable coins were as the name suggests very stable um, <laughs> the fact that that has been undermined has made people rethink but I think you know you've still got you know the, you know, the sort of gold standard Bitcoin has rebounded very quickly from that sell-off you know it's still seen within the crypto world as a safe haven along with Ethereum and some of the other good names there, things that, you know, these currencies that actually uh, fund the blockchain. Um, mm. But there's still a lot of speculative coins out there. Um, and I think we're going to, until we see some further regulation uh, of bringing these things under some sort of control, we're going to continue to see these, uh, you know, occasions where, where there's a, a panic sell-off. And I think that's really what it was. Well, what do you think's gone wrong, Quentin, with this? Because these stable coins... They're pretty important, aren't they? They underpin the whole crypto markets. The idea is you sort of park your money in them uh, while, you're, while you're sort of moving around between the other cryptocurrencies. And they were supposed to be pegged to the US dollar, but clearly not anymore. That's right. That is a big problem. I think it's important, though, to distinguish between these two different kinds of stable coins. So what we've seen with Terra is the collapse of an algorithmic stable coin. So... Um, that is not a stable coin that's backed by a sort of set supply of, you know, safe assets. Uh, and actually, the, the, the kind of non-algorithmic stable coins, Tether in particular, have held up a lot better. You know, they have deviated slightly from $1, but they have been much more stable than uh, Terra. So th th that, that has held so far. The other thing I think that we've seen in this recent sell-off is, you know, this kind of increasing... Uh, interconnectedness between crypto and the broader markets. So as crypto has become more widely adopted, more institutional investors or hedge funds um, are holding both crypto and other assets. And so when you have this massive sell-off in tech stocks, for example, you know, some of the same speculative investors are in both categories, and they may need to sell down some of their crypto holdings as well. So it's not the case that this is a market that's completely insulated and uncorrelated from other parts of the global markets now. And that is part of what has been feeding the 
turbulence recently. It, this reminds me a bit of um, during the global financial crisis when U.S. money market funds broke the buck. I'm sure you both remember that. Something also that was never supposed to have happened. Now we've seen this collapse in stable coins. Could, could, is there a risk that this could lead to another financial crisis? Um, I don't think it's going to be. I mean, I think for, for a start, I mean, I don't think the crypto world has has, has gained enough traction to, to have a huge impact, but obviously it would have some impact. And we've seen more financial institutions becoming more accepting of uh, investing in crypto. But I think the, the percentage of portfolios held there is, is still relatively small. So it would cause an incon inconvenience, I think, rather than a crisis. Now, you both mentioned earlier that, you know, um, looking for havens, maybe companies and, and, you know, markets where companies are generating good cash flows, solid companies. Where do Hong Kong and Chinese equities uh, fit into this? The Hang Seng um, Index, uh, it's down 15% so far this year. The Tech Index year to date down 29%. Uh, the Shanghai Composite for the year, that's lost over 15% so far. But do you see any signs maybe that this is an, a region where there is value and where investors should be looking and maybe markets here uh, are putting in a bottom? Well, I think it's, there, there are certainly there are always going to be good companies. I mean, obviously, you know, with with the oil prices moving, we've seen the petrochem companies and the chemical companies doing well here. But I think we've also still got some pretty sound um, manufacturing companies. You know, companies like yeah, Tektronix, which I think, you know, it, it's come off its highs significantly. But I mean, I think as interest rate goes up, we're going to see more people returning to DIY, and it's very well placed then uh, to take advantage of that. So I think there are a number of you know, specific names that one can look at uh, and find good opportunities. Quentin, uh, what do you think of the local market here? I mean, obviously, we've got an economy that's in contraction, down 4% in the first quarter. We've got US interest rates rising, uh, which is going to push up mortgage rates here and, and quite potentially um, affect the world's prices property market. Nevertheless, um, are local stocks, uh, are they a good buy? You could make a bold case for them, and I think what you would argue if you did that was, you know, first of all, valuations are pretty low. Secondly, you know, the stocks here had sold off hard already, and so actually, in a sense, what's happening in global markets kind of lags what's happening in Hong Kong. And then you do have a lot of kind of old economy companies, you know, big conglomerates, for example, um, oil companies, for example, as Andrew mentioned. So, yeah, there are there are reasons why you could argue that the Hong Kong market might be kind of better placed than some others. Do you think we're out of this cycle now of crackdowns on companies? Over the weekend, there were reports that President Xi Jinping was warning again about improper capital. Um, are we still at risk of more crackdowns from, from Beijing? Well, I think, you know, obviously the, the, the situation in Beijing is very, very tense at the moment. They're still trying to, um, you know, I, I suppose come out with a policy that will actually address COVID. They've got a lot of dangers there because of the aging population and the lack of uh, um, vaccinations that have taken place. And, and at the same time, that, you know, that's having a big impact on their economy. So I think, I think there's going to be obviously dangers there with the slowdown of the economy, with the, the loss of jobs or the, the non-creation of jobs maybe, um, is going to cause them problems as new graduates come out. So I, th I think there's still a lot of uh, overhang there mm. um, and of course this is going to put pressure on uh, on the party when it comes to whether or not they give uh, Xi his third term um, because there are implications there
Quinton, it's going to be a big day for Chinese data, isn't it? A lot of data coming out, retail sales, industrial production. We saw the credit growth decelerate sharply in April. Beijing cut mortgage rates over over the weekend. Um, What should we be looking out for? Well, yeah, I think the kind of widespread assumption is that this is all going to be pretty... Um, pretty gloomy, you know, retail sales are unlikely to be good because uh, so much of the country is in lockdown. Um, you know, industrial production is probably likely to be affected for similar reasons too. So um, I, I guess it'll be interesting to see the kind of magnitude of some of the declines and it might be interesting to see the sort of a, a official response to that and to what extent there is signaling about some kind of, um, you know, attempt to offset that weakness. Okay, well, thank you both very much. You heard that Quinton Webb, Asia Markets Editor at the Wall Street Journal, Andrew Sullivan, who's Managing Director at Outset Global. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Eight twenty-three and a half on the phone from mainland China is Brock Silvers, Chief Investment Officer at Kion Capital. Morning, Brock. Hey, good morning. Um, let me ask you, first of all, about the situation uh, in Beijing and Shanghai. We're seeing a decline now in the number of cases in Shanghai. They're talking about uh, slowly reopening uh, certain types of businesses um, in phases. Are, is China getting on top of this um, outbreak now? Well, look, we have to distinguish between what may be happening with COVID and, and the economic consequences of the policies themselves. Um, and we hear lots of positive spin about some areas opening, some factories being allowed to operate and so on. But but how on earth can that really work if transportation is down, if uh, if shipping is uh, is problematic, workers can't easily move, you know. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk can brag about a dedicated workforce sleeping in the factory, but it, it just doesn't matter at this point. So can President Xi Jinping sort of end COVID-19 without also doing a lot of damage to China's economy? Can these two policies continue to coexist side by side? Or are you seeing signs that maybe China is finally trying to find a way of, of getting out of this zero COVID policy? Well, you know, Lee Kuchang just made a strong case for keeping zero COVID. And, and look, maybe he's right. It's a political decision and above my pay grade. But but again, if we look to the economic consequences, we already know that the Caixin Purchasing Managers Index is down to 36, mm. which is very, very bleak. Um, and we've seen banks like UBS, Barclays and Bank of America all say that that uh, 2022 GDP will fall to 4.2%. And, and I'd say that the, the final number is more likely to be sub-4. So we are seeing some real effects. I don't know that the policies are going to change quickly, but I'd also say those effects probably won't really be seen and start to be seen until the second half of the year. Well, we're going to have more more data today, aren't we, on retail sales, industrial production. We had the credit numbers at the end of last week, which showed a a huge deceleration in new credit formation, which I suppose isn't a surprise, is it? If your factories are locked down and your people can't get to work, you don't have much need for credit. Yeah, that's right. Look, I think today we'll start to see that uh, some of the impact and all of this would be the case even if we change the zero COVID policies today, which is something that's not going to happen. Mm. So I, I don't think we're at the end of the uh, of the story on this one. And what do you think policymakers will do? Are, are they reaching a point of maximum pain where they have just got to uh, step in and try and do something to salvage the economy? And what can they do? 
You know, I, I, I think it's become a much more political decision than an economic one. And, uh, you know, the government of China has the luxury of being able to take very strong stands when it feels it should. So I, I think we're going to continue to see this issue drag on for a bit. So what does this mean for Hong Kong? The Hong Kong General Chamber of Commerce uh, on Friday said the city needs to reopen its borders as soon as possible to tackle its brain drain. Uh, but we did hear this news over the weekend. The Asian Cup, which was due to be held in uh, in China next summer, has, has been cancelled. That, that doesn't really send out good signals, does it, that China is ready at any time soon to reopen its borders and therefore Hong Kong's not going to be able to reopen its borders. That, that's right. Look, COVID is essentially uh, over or, or, in my mind, de minimis in Hong Kong. But COVID policies continue uh, in force. And, look, China is transitioning Hong Kong from a foreign financial outpost to a Chinese financial outpost. But as long as the border is closed, Hong Kong is sort of a China satellite without access to China. Mm. It, just no, it, it just no longer works as a model. And if we throw in global travel restrictions and social COVID measures, it all takes a strong toll on an island that's really based on finance and trade. So that's why it's one of the reasons we're seeing an ongoing exodus of companies, financial operations, human talent, um, which contributes to uh, to the first quarter 4% year-on-year GDP uh, contraction. Uh, the government seems fairly confident that those people are going to return. Are you, are you as confident as the government? Uh, I am completely unconfident, uh, despite the government's reassurance. I think once those jobs and, uh, and and people and economic dynamism leaves, it's very difficult to see it return in the short haul. Um, but I but I also think that the problem, even if we were to even if we were to change zero COVID policies today. Um, we're still in a situation where Hong Kong has a contracting economy at the same time that the U.S. has really started to ratchet up rates. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? The HKMA spent more than a billion dollars last week propping up the Hong Kong dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, so a good long Hong Kong decade of easy money it now seems to be over. Um, and rising rates while in a contracting economy sounds like a pretty gloomy 2022. Uh, and what does that mean then for the local housing markets with, uh, you know, the economy in contraction, rates going up, that's going to push high bore up, uh, and hence mortgage rates. It, it doesn't seem a good combination for what is already a very expensive housing market. No, very expensive and extremely important to the economy as a whole. And and that driver, uh, you know, again, seems to be neutered for the immediate for the immediate future. So what does not this a pretty, all- not a pretty picture? What does this all mean for stock markets uh, in Hong Kong and on the mainland? You've been pretty gloomy over the past few weeks, rightly so, about yeah. uh, the outlook for the markets. You, one stage you said they were uninvestable. Are you seeing any sign now that maybe we're at the bottom? And are you tempted to go back in? Well, look, in some sense, China valuations are, are attractive on paper. There's, and there's a lot of capital waiting for the removal of zero COVID. When that goes away, the market's going to pop which means that's a trade for people with the right risk profile and timeline. But for me, you know, the issue with China equities isn't valuation. It's that, you know, investors want a market structure that's stable and predictable. And I don't think that's China right now. And I assume that this is going to be the case for the rest of the year. But certainly, I think throughout the remainder of the zero COVID issue. So 
valuations are good, but investability is still a concern. However, I think I'd look to non-China Hong Kong equities as interesting before I'd look for more China-focused plays. Brock, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. That's Brock Silvers, Chief Investment Officer at Kyan Capital. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Markets are still moving higher, although off their highs now. The SX200 in Australia up about uh, half a percent. The K225 still looking good at 1.4%. Uh, in Japan, in in South Korea, the Cosby is up about 0.6%. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 250 points for the Hang Seng. Uh, the open this morning. Coming up next on Radio 3, the news followed by COVID updates with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast mainly cloudy, a few showers at first. The temperature will be around 23 degrees today and it's going to be sunny periods. Temperatures will rise progressively in the next couple of days, one or two showers in the latter part of this week. The temperature right now is 19 degrees and it's 89% relative humidity. 8.31, here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. An exhibition trade spokesman says the industry needs a timeline for reopening as it takes time to arrange for such events to return to Hong Kong. Stuart Bailey, the chairman of the Hong Kong Exhibition and Convention Industry Association, said the city was losing some of the biggest and economically important trade shows to other places, such as Dubai, Singapore and Thailand. He said the longer that quarantine for arrivals remained in place, the more damaging it was for the SAR's reputation. There's a huge appetite for large-scale international events to resume, um, both from, uh, from organisers here and participants from overseas. Um, but obviously the industry needs time to plan. Um, and we also need certainty that the business community can travel without those restrictions. I mean, almost every other city in the region has already done away with mandatory quarantine periods. While Hong Kong, which has now achieved high immunity rates through vaccination and natural immunity through infection, is still sticking with this out-of-date and harmful policy. Health authorities have reported 259 new COVID infections. That's down 25 from the day before. 33 of the new cases were imported. Hong Kong has also recorded one death linked to the virus. More from Todd Harding. Health officials say they're looking into a COVID cluster at a private kitchen in the Xing Yip Industrial Building in Guntong. Dr. Chuang Shuk-Kwan from the Centre for Health Protection said nine people who'd been to the Imperial Kitchen last Monday have come down with COVID. She said everyone who went there after 5pm that day must get tested. And Dr. Chuang said the cluster of COVID-19 infections linked to the Sky Cuisine restaurant in Shengwan has grown. She said another four members of staff and seven diners had contracted the disease, taking the total to 52. Overseas now, voters in Switzerland have supported a requirement for streaming companies such as Netflix and Disney to invest 4% of their turnover into Swiss filmmaking. The policy will come into force in 2024. The BBC's Imogen Fuchs has this report. What they've said is that some of the money that they pay out to the streamers like Disney, Sky, Netflix, etc. should come back into indigenous, into Swiss filmmaking. And this is reflected across Europe, but maybe particularly in smaller countries like this, that they need to see that their own homegrown film culture thrives and that they, they don't always want when they turn on to watch a good drama or a good documentary that it's about somewhere else. Egypt has agreed to buy half a million tons of wheat from India. 
as it tries to deal with disruption to its supply caused by the war in Ukraine. The deal is going ahead, even though the Indian government has now banned wheat exports due to an extreme heat wave that has caused domestic prices to rise. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to COVID Update. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. This morning, uh, health authorities 